Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at the Summit Church. Really glad that you're here, especially if this is your first time, like Andy said, and especially as we get to continue in this series, Stories of Grace, uh, in the book of Genesis. Last week, I probably received more negative feedback for any sermon that I've ever done, uh, primarily because I uh, mentioned keeping up with the Kardashians and a bunch of guys proceeded to tell me they wanted to beat me up and made fun of me and asked me if all I do in my free time is watch reality TV. So I guess that was positive feedback. I kind of agree with them. And a lot of people were wondering, you know, is that what you do in your free time? You just sort of watch bad reality TV all the time. Uh, No, no, that's not what I do. And so I thought tonight the most appropriate way to begin is to tell you that this week as I was reading the New York Times, which, (laughs) ooh, like, Like, isn't that impressive? Yes, this week as I was reading in the New York Times, I came across an article that I thought was just really relevant for tonight uh, about a lady by the name of Louise Fitzhugh. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of her, uh, but she's a children's book author. She wrote a book called Harriet the Spy. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of Harriet the Spy. And it was talking about this book that she wrote, probably the saddest titled kid's book that I've ever heard of my entire life, uh, called Nobody's Family is Going to Change. Nobody's Family is Going to Change. And the premise of the book was such that uh, basically it's a story of a family, a mom and dad, an older brother and younger sister, and it's written from the perspective of this little girl, Emma, who sort of witnesses her family dynamics, and it's a very dysfunctional family. Uh, The dad is very cold and calloused. Uh, The older boy dreams of being a dancer, and the dad is consistently crushing his dreams. And the mom uh, is constantly playing peacemaker in the nature of the relationship. And Emma, the little girl who's witnessing sort of the same fight in her home, the same fights at her dinner table, night after night after night after night, finally concludes what becomes the moral of the story. Nobody's family is going to change. Uh, A very heavy message for the six to 10-year-old reading group. Uh, I didn't have that in my elementary school library. Now, the reason that stuck out to me is because tonight what we're going to be talking about is uh, the nature of family dynamics and particularly dysfunctional families and its consequences, as well as God's grace to bring uh, redemption and restoration in messed up families, probably like uh, the ones that you grew up in and the ones many of us grew up in. And what really struck me about that book is I was reading reviews about nobody's family is going to change, that instead of seeing critics say things along the lines of, you know, don't you think this is a little heavy for six to ten-year-olds? Or, you know, really, that's, that's not you know, something that happens very often. Really, that's the exception, not the rule. Instead, what, what I read was almost universal support in favor of a book where person after person after person after person said, yep, that's exactly the way it is. And it's better for these kids to learn it the easy way through a book early on in their lives as opposed to later on the hard way. Now, that may throw some of you off. And for many of us, you know, we probably think, That's a pretty mature topic for a kindergartner to be reading about. But from our own common experiences, the reality is as many of us have learned that lesson of family dysfunction and its consequences in a very difficult way. For many of us, we do grow up assuming that, you know, our parents, our siblings are going to be perfect. Dad is going to fight and protect for us. Mom is going to be kind and gentle for us. But then something happens to shatter that expectation of our parents. And you can remember it so distinctly because it's so traumatizing for you. So even though you grow up expecting that mom will be very kind and gentle towards you, you can probably remember exactly the first moment that you saw your mom cuss. And you thought to yourself, like, this is very unusual. This is not like what I experienced the first seven years of my life. I, you can remember it with absolute clarity. Many of you, even though you expected dad to fight and to protect you, you can remember distinctly a, a moment where he said something very harsh to you, 
where he had said something that wounded you very deeply, and it, it stays with you. Even though you're years separated from that moment, you can remember exactly what he said, exactly what room in the house you were in when he said it. You can remember the clothes he was wearing at the time that he said it. It's so deeply impactful on your life that you can remember exactly how it went down, and it still affects you today. And so even though you know, we may hear nobody's family is going to change, teaching six-year-olds about family dysfunction, yeah, many of us may say that's sort of a weird topic for a kindergartner to be learning about. There's an aspect of us that says, I can relate to that. I identify with that. They are going to have to learn that lesson one way or another. And the reason uh, I share that tonight is because what we see in the story tonight that we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 27 is a very, very dysfunctional family. What we're going to see, you you think that your family is dysfunctional. You think that your family is messed up. You think that you've had real heartbreak and pain. What you're going to see in this family tonight is a family with serious dysfunction and the consequences of that dysfunction as well. And what we're going to see is how God works to actively get involved in this family, in this messy, broken family, families just like yours and family just like mine. And he's going to work to bring grace and redemption and restoration. What we're going to see tonight is the story of a family, uh, of the of a man named Isaac. Isaac, we learned about last week. We met him last week. Uh, he was the son of Abraham. So Abraham had Isaac, and we fast forward a few chapters in the Bible. Abraham has died since now, uh, since then, and Isaac has grown up. He's old. He's blind. He's about to die himself. And Isaac married a woman by the name of Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah had two kids, one named Jacob and one named Esau. Esau's a little bit older. Jacob is a little bit younger, and they're twins. But Esau was born first. And what we're going to see in this family with Abraham's grandkids, Jacob and Esau, is a glimpse into the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of grace for the family, for the family, okay? So we're going to look at chapter 27, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go ahead and jump right into it, okay? Chapter 27, verse 1, the text says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out up to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, None of this seems really bad at this moment in this story. All that, all that Isaac wants to pass on is a blessing. But what you need to know is in Genesis chapter 25, when these kids were born, God came uh, to Isaac and told him, you are going to pass the blessing on to, uh, you're going to pass the blessing on to Jacob and not Esau. Now, understand in our culture, uh, blessing isn't really a huge deal. You wouldn't think that's a, you know, a, a major uh, thing in the life of a family, but it was a huge deal in this family. It was a really, really big deal. Uh, not, only in the, not only in this culture, but also in this family where God had originally made a promise to say that he would bring blessing through a lineage, that, that their name would be made great, and their fame would extend to the ends of the earth. So it was a really big deal when God would pass on this blessing. And God said, there's no questions about it. Isaac, pass it on to Jacob, not Esau. The problem is, is that Jacob loved Esau more. Isaac loved Esau more. Isaac loved 
Esau more. He loved him a lot more. And, and I mean, as you read the text, what you're going to see is that Esau was a man's man. He was the type of man that would earn his father's affection in this way. Esau is described as being a hunter. He works with his hands. He's very hairy, got a beard, very manly, very attractive, chest hair. You know, he was the type of kid who, you know, was growing a mustache in middle school before anybody else. He was a man's man. And because that, because of that, Isaac loved him more. And what he does is sets up this sort of secretive plan uh, where nobody will know about it to bless him in secret, even though that's not what God commanded. Now, the story continues and things get even more interesting in verse 5. If you look there, it says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So Rebecca was listening in as this conversation was ha- happening. You know, it's like they were behind a wall and Rebecca has a cup up to the wall to sort of listen in to what is going on. And she overhe- overhears what's going. She says, oh no, it is not going to go down this way. And she brought, brings Jacob close and says in verse 8, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And they proceed from here to sort of unpack a plan to trick dying blind dad into mistakenly blessing Jacob as opposed to Esau. So what you have here is that while Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob. Why? He wasn't a man's man. He was a mama's boy. He was small, probably feminine. He was a type of boy that a mom would be drawn to. And in fact, even in verse 11, it says that he was a smooth man, which means he was hairless. He was the kid who was like still in college waiting for puberty to kick in, hair to grow on the legs, the voice to deepen a little bit. He was the type of boy that, you know, mom was like, I need to watch after him and protect him and take up for him. And so here's the family dynamic, this very, very dysfunctional family. You have dad, Isaac, who is secretly trying to bless Esau, even though it's against God's will. You have Esau, who is going along with this plan. You have Rebekah, who is secretly trying to undermine her dying, blind husband. And then you have Jacob, who's sort of too passive to say anything in this process. And because of it, the plan goes on as they tried. Now, What's interesting about this family dynamic is not only that, you know, probably that it's interesting that a family was doing this thousands of years ago across the globe, but that many of us can relate to families that were wired just this way. Probably many of you grew up in homes where multiple siblings, where one sibling was favored, and there was a lot of resentment, and there was a lot of tension, and it ultimately would fracture the family. Probably many of you grew up in families where dad was largely passive, uninvolved, and he didn't prioritize the will of God going forward toward, for the family, just like, just like Isaac in this story. Probably many of you grew up in homes where mom was largely kind of crazy and manipulative, involved, and kind of had her hand in everything. And because of it, it just it basically multiplied situations that weren't good, and it, it exploded. It mushroomed into very, very bad situations. Well, what this text is showing you is not just that families have been messed up just like yours for the past thousands of years, just like yours all the way across the globe, but it's also meant to show you that that dysfunction that you grew up around has consequences. The dysfunction has consequences, and the reason I state that is because time and time again, when I'm in counseling meetings and things like that, I ask people about their families. That's actually the first question I ask people when I do premarital counseling. I say, Tell me about your family dynamic. Tell me about your mom and your dad and the way you grew up and the way they related to one another and what was modeled to you in terms of what it means to be a man, what was modeled to you in terms of what it means to be a woman. And I just hear some of the craziest stories time and time again. And then I follow up with a question of like, how do you think that's going to impact you one day? And it's like, well, it's not going to impact me at all. 
It may have impacted my mom. It may have impacted my dad. It may have impacted my siblings. But don't you know, like, I'm immune. I'm, I'm vaccinated from their jacked-up lives and their, its impact on my life. And what you need to understand is the dysfunction has consequences. The dysfunction has consequences. And the text is very clear about this. I want you to see this uh, in, verse, in verse 14, okay? So skip down to verse 14. And it says this, so he, talking about Jacob here, went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and he put, <coughs> and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread uh, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So this is sort of a humorous image. You get this image. So small, sort of frail boy. Uh, he doesn't have any hair on his arms and his legs. He can't, you know, hunt for himself. And so because of that, mom has to come and prepare a meal for him. Uh, he's not hairy enough. He hasn't gone through puberty yet. So mom has to dress him up and put furs around him so he looks like Esau. So you can just picture it. He's carrying a meal that his mom made into the room to his dying dad, dressed up like Chewbacca at Halloween. I mean, he's like very, very hairy, walking into this room. He probably had a very high voice. And he's like, Be- I mean, behold, it is Esau, your son, who has returned from the hunt. And sick, dying, blind dad cannot really understand or comprehend what is going on in this moment. It's sort of comical what's going on in this scene, but it's very sad as well. It's very comical on the surface, but it is very, very sad. Not only because of what this family is doing to one another, but this image of what Jacob is doing. And that he comes into this room after years of not being able to have his dad's affection, after years of his dad favoring one son over the other, after years of being told that he's not good enough, not manly enough, not, not, has not earned the family blessing. And he comes in front of his dad, and rather than coming as he is and asking his dad to bless him, he has to dress up and come in as somebody else. And you just get this picture of him dressed up like somebody else coming in front of the man who should love him and approve him and shower affection on him and saying to him, will you love me? Will you bless me? Will you notice me? Will you pay me attention? The image that kept coming to my mind, if you ever go to the pool, which I never go to the pool. I don't tan, I freckle, and I burn. So I never go to the pool. But when you go to the pool, almost inevitably, there's like a four-year-old on the diving board whose dad is off to the side checking scores on his iPhone or something like that. And what's, what's that kid doing? He's like getting ready to do, in his mind, the greatest cannonball that has ever been done in the history of the world. And he's like, Dad, 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 watch. Dad, 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 watch. Dad, watch. And then after he jumps in, what is it? Dad, did you see? Did you watch? Did you notice? Did you pay attention? Did you see what I did? A little kid clamoring for his father's attention and his blessing and his affection. And all that's happened in this story is that little kid has grown up and become a man, but he still has to dress up to clamor and to manipulate his father into showing him affection and attention. Many of you can probably relate to this in many ways. You know exactly what it's like to yearn for a mom, for a dad to look at you and say, I'm proud of you. I love you, and I approve of you. I'm excited of what you've done with your life. I'm excited of what God's doing in your life. I am proud of you, and I love you. You can relate to exactly what Jacob was feeling here. Again and again and again, what you meet, I'm sure probably many of you in this room are like this. Many of you know people like this who spend many years of their lives, sometimes their entire lives, trying to earn that blessing from their parents by dressing up as somebody that they aren't. I saw this time and time again in college. You would meet people. You would meet people who were 
getting degrees in fields they absolutely hated, to go into career paths that they absolutely hated, so that one day they could tell their dad, I became a blank, a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, a financial manager and planner, whatever it is. And he would say, well done, son. I love you and I approve of you. What happens in college is then you meet the opposite person and at late night dorm talks, you're sitting in your dorm room and you meet the person who inevitably, you know, was told to go to this university to get this degree and had their whole life laid out for them. And then, you know, they're unbelievably bitter and they just talk for hours upon hours about, you know, my parents told me to go to this university and get this degree. They never wanted me to be an artist. So I went here and I went into art and I'm going to prove them wrong. And eventually one day I'll show them that I was right and they were wrong. And all that's happening in that moment is you're still a person who's driven by your parents' lack of approval, dressing up like somebody you aren't. You're just doing it in a less financially beneficial manner, right? I mean, you're like a starving artist as opposed to a doctor. Like, if you're going to do one, like, go with the financially beneficial option, right? So Jacob dresses up like somebody that he isn't to trick and to manipulate his father into showing him attention and affection that he could not earn on his own. An unbelievably heartbreaking image. A heartbreaking image probably many of you resonate in many ways. Now, the story continues, and the plan works. Jacob tricks his father into blessing him mistakenly. He, he gives the blessing. He thinks that it's Esau. And what we're going to see then is that there's an aftermath of uh, the dysfunction. The dysfunction has consequences. It's produced a boy like this who, who isn't even sure of himself, and he has to come in front of his father, dress up like his brother to earn his father's blessing. And what happens as the story continues is there's significant fallout from that, that the, that the, con- that the, that the dysfunction not only has consequences, but the family has to deal with the consequences in one way. Right? They have to deal with the consequences one way or another. And this is what we're going to see now is something that probably all of you have experienced firsthand and many of you resonate with and have experienced firsthand. It's that dysfunctional families tend to handle their dysfunction dysfunctionally. Right? Dysfunctional families tend to handle their dysfunction dysfunctionally. And that's what we're going to see after this text in the fallout. So what we're going to see now in verse 30. So drop all the way down in your Bible to verse 30, where we're going to see the fallout, see how this family handles their dysfunction very dysfunctionally. Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. So this is a scene straight out from a movie, you know, where two people aren't supposed to bump into each other, and like one walks out the room, and then before the door can swing shut, the other person walks in as well. They just barely miss each other. That's exactly what happens. And Esau comes in and says, you know, I've got the food. I'm here. I'm ready for the blessing. And what we see is all of a sudden a light bulb goes off for Isaac, and he realizes what goes down. If you look at verse 33, it says that Isaac trembled very violently. What we see is Isaac breaks into a near panic attack, recognizing what's gone down. Not only that the blessing that he intended for Esau has now gone to Jacob, but also his very sinful plan that he was doing in secret has now been made public to all. And what happens is Esau starts clamoring, begging, take the blessing away from Jacob, give it to me. And, And Isaac says, what's done is done probably because he finally realized that God's will was done and the blessing went to the son that it was always intended to go to. Now, what we see, like we said, that there's, there's a fallout from this. That, that there isn't just dysfunction and its consequences, but there's also, dis, there's also uh, a managing of those consequences. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see sort of three ways this family then tries to fix the situation. You're going to see this in verse 41, where the first is through anger. And with each of these, this isn't just the way these fa- the family handles the dysfunction, but it's the way that uh, 
that we tend to handle dysfunction in our own lives as well and its consequences. The verses through anger in verse 41, we see this with Esau. It says, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Esau says, I've got a plan. Here's how I'm going to fix this. I am going to kill my brother. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about, about why that's wrong, okay? Not, hopefully, we're all on the same page in terms of murder being wrong. If you have any questions, email me. We'll get together in a public place, and we'll talk about it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the reality is, as we look at a thing like this, I mean, we laugh, right? We look at uh, an image like this, and we say, I would never handle it this way. Like, I'm never plotting of where I'm going to bury the body when I'm angry at people. Like, I would never follow through with murder. But here's what Jesus says. He says that murder isn't just a matter of the hands, but it's a matter of the heart and the head as well. And it's not just a matter of what you do to a person, but it's also a matter of what you think and feel about a person as well. And what he says is is murder is much more robust, much more exhaustive than just physically killing somebody. He looks at people just like you and just like me, and he says, you are guilty of murdering people day in and day out in your heart and your mind. And you know exactly what this is like. When somebody wrongs you, when a family member wrongs you, when you hold a grudge, and the things that go through your head, the things that go through your mind, she's going to finally get what's coming to her. I hope she finally gets what she deserves. I hate her. She makes me so angry. Things that go through your head and through your heart, that they are projected on a screen you would grimace and you would be ashamed and people would be shocked. Again and again, we handle the consequences of family dysfunction and relational dysfunction through murder. It's just murder of the head and the heart, and hopefully not the hands, okay? Tell somebody if that's of the hands, okay? The second way that we see is this, is that we handle our dysfunction through control. And this is what Rebecca does in verses 42 and 43. Look at verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Verse 43, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Now, this is the third time in this story that Rebekah has said this to Jacob. Obey my voice. And you would think by this point in the story, she would say, you need to stop obeying my voice and you need to start obeying the voice of God. But everybody knows somebody like this. Rebecca's kind of crazy, manipulative, involved. She has her hand in everything. She has an opinion about everything. She has a strong uh, plan that if people will just jump on board with, it'll fix everything. You know people like this. You know people like this. Maybe this is you in your family where there's dysfunction and there's problems and there's conflict. There's somebody that comes in to solve the day who knows exactly what to do. Here's the plan. Do exactly this, this, this. You say this. She'll say this. You call that person. If you'll do exactly what I say, it'll all be fixed. Behold, the Savior is here. I'm here. Bow down and listen to me. Obey my voice. We see a third way of handling this conflict as well. We see it in verses, uh, at the end of verse 43 through 45. Uh, the text says this. This is, this is Jacob now. It says, arise. This is Rebecca talking to Jacob. Arise, free to Laban, to my, uh, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your bro- brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. So we see is that while Esau gets angry, while Rebekah gets kind of crazy manipulative 
and controlling. What Jacob does is he flees. He flees. He runs away. What we see right in this text is he kind of thinks to himself, you know, eventually the problem is just going to blow over. He'll forget all about it, and I can return home, and it won't be a problem anymore. This is probably the way most of you handle conflict. You don't, you don't tackle it head on. You don't have sort of a face-to-face conversation. Instead, you run away. I probably shouldn't say anything about it. Uh, you know, it's probably not that big of a deal. Uh, you know, it'll blow over in time. It's probably just better if I don't say anything at all. Eventually, our feelings will be mended. Eventually, things will be better. Many of you grew up in homes just like this. Mom and dad would explode at one another. They would go in their separate corners for days, uh, you know, hours, whatever. And eventually, they would reconcile and come back together because they couldn't do life apart from one another. And there wasn't sort of any healthy discussion about how there was going to be any resolution and reconciliation in the relationship. And what was modeled for you for 18 years were parents who handled conflict in a really unhealthy way and fled from one another. And because of that, you've absorbed that and, are do- and aren't doomed, but are likely to multiply that in your life as well. What's so sad about this story, what's so sad for those of you who run from conflict, who run in the other direction, who think, I don't, you know, I'm not, it's not going to affect me, I can run away from the problem, is in this story, you know what happens? Jacob multiplies the same mistake in his family's life. He multiplies this mistake in his family's life. And what happens, uh, even though he runs away, even though he thinks he's running away from the problem and it won't ever affect him, what eventually happens is he has sons himself. You know what he does? He ends up favoring one son over all the other sons, which leads to amazing family tension that boils over to the point that all the brothers group up together and they take the brother, they beat him up, and they sell him into slavery, and it fractures the family apart. See, Jacob thought he could run away from the problem. I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to confront it. Eventually, it'll boil over. And all he does is he multiplies it in his own life. See, the thing is, is what you're running away from is not so much your circumstances. Your problem is never your circumstances. It's your heart. And you can never outrun your heart. You can never outrun it. And that's what we see in the life of Jacob. He runs away. He thinks he's escaping these circumstances. And the reality is all he does is multiplies this legacy of dysfunction in his own family. So Esau gets angry. Rebecca gets controlling. Jacob runs away. Many of you have tried this. Many of you have tried you know, the approach of uh, anger. Many of you have tried the approach of controlling, manipulating, and fixing. Many of you have tried running away. And what the scriptures show, the way this story ends, is that every single one of those streets are dead ends. And that all that happens in the life of this family is the multiplication of more family dysfunction for the following generations. That's the way this story ends. Like there's no resolution. There's no happy ending. Chapter 27 just ends. I mean, think about it. Isaac is dying and he's lost his family because of his passivity and his unwillingness to be a good spiritual leader in the family. Rebecca has told her son to run away and her controlling and manipulation has multiplied the mistakes more and more and more. And she sends her son away and she'll never see him again before she dies. Esau gets angry and says, I'm going to kill my brother. Jacob runs away and says, I'm going to run away from this situation. It reminds me of like watching sort of an emo independent foreign film that like just ends and everybody's left feeling crappy about their life, right? Like that's the way chapter 27 ends. Everybody feels bad about their lives. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. As we think about our family dysfunction, as we witness this family's dysfunction, is it's not the final word. When chapter 27 ends, it's not the final word. It's not the end of the story. The story does continue. And what you see is even though this family did everything to warrant the removal of God's blessings, God is 
faithful. God is involved. God pursues. He gets into the mess of this family. And what he does is he works to bring redemption and reconciliation and restoration in and through this family. And so what we see is that ultimately Jacob and Esau are reconciled to one another. And they become brothers again. What we'll see next week is that Jacob goes, undergoes a dramatic personal transformation. He undergoes a dramatic personal transformation and finally begins to understand his relationship with God in a, in a right way. And even though Jacob goes and he multiplies this dysfunction for the generations to come, God is still faithful. Really, the rest of the Old Testament is the story about Jacob's kids. Jacob has his name changed to Israel next week, and the entire Old Testament is basically about Israel. And Israel is one jacked up, messed up family. Like if Jerry Springer existed thousands of years ago, I'm telling you, it would be somebody from that family or the extended family on the show, day in and day out. They are messed up, but God is faithful. And he gets involved, and he chases after, and he pursues until finally, after thousands of years of unfaithfulness, there comes one man who is finally faithful, Jesus from the line of Jacob. And he comes. And rather than being dysfunctional, he is the first truly functional man in human history. Rather than being sinful, is the first truly sinless man in human history. Rather than fleeing and running away from the consequences of sin, even though he's the one sinless man in human history, actually runs to the cross and takes on the consequences of sin, even though he was sinless. And it was through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that he fulfilled a promise that was made thousands of years prior to Jacob's family, that in him and through him, salvation would come to to the ends of the earth. In the end, God is faithful and working to bring redemption and working to bring restoration, and he is doing it through the person of Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And it's because we follow Jesus that we then celebrate and cling to, that that stories like Genesis chapter 27, stories that many of you have lived out, stories that many of us have lived out in this room are not the final word. They're not the final word. And so while many of you may be told, you know, as you're wrapping your mind around, what is it like to deal with my family's dysfunction and its consequences? As you're wrestling with the things that have been done to you and the the things you've been exposed to and the consequences of just seeing some really toxic stuff up up close and personal, you you were wounded by people you never expected to wound you. They were the least likely. What, What do you do with that? Well, what you celebrate is that it's not the final word, that Jesus comes. And he says, this is not your identity. Even though culture says that you're a slave to your DNA, even though culture says that you're a product to your environment, even though you're starting to have things happen where you say things that you're like, oh my gosh, like my mom said that, and I hated it when my mom said that. I'm becoming my mother, and I'm multiplying all the things of my mom that like I never thought I would multiply in my own life. What's happening to me? And culture says, you're a slave to your DNA. You're a product of your environment. Jesus says, no, that's not the final word, I have come so that you may be born again. I've come so that you may have new life and you may have a new identity. And for many of you, you've had really serious things done to you. I know that. I'm not trying to say that, that I understand exactly what it is that, have gone, that you've gone, gone through. 
and what culture is going to push you towards is being a victim, that your identity will be wrapped up to the things that your family has done to you. Oh, she is just the single mom. Oh, she is just the recovering alcoholic. Oh, he is just the one who is overcoming physical abuse. It's like that becomes who you are. That is how you are labeled. That becomes your identity. And Jesus says, no, that is not the final word. I have come so that you may take on my identity. I have gone to the cross so I may take on sin and the entirety of its consequences. What it means is you're trying to wrap your mind around how do I handle the consequences of dysfunction in a somewhat functional way. What it means then is rather than like Jacob multiplying the dysfunction generation after generation after generation after generation after generation, instead you can break the cycle. You can start a new legacy. You can start a new path for the family. What it means is that you were liberated by the gospel to forgive. And you may push back and say, well, you don't understand what was done to me. They haven't even asked for forgiveness. You you don't understand the wounds that I carry. I, I agree with you. I probably don't understand the entirety of what has been done to you. But I will say this, as God has been gracious to you, not because you deserve it, but by his sheer grace and by his mercy. And what that does is God's grace. Those, those who have received God's grace become gracious to others as well. It means that you can forgive. You can let go. You can stop being bitter. You can stop being angry. You can stop mulling over things in your mind. You can stop thinking that you're the byproduct of a really jacked up upbringing. But instead, you can forgive and let go and become a new creation. What it means is you can be an initiator of reconciliation. You can be a minister of reconciliation. And instead of holding a grudge, instead of running away, and instead of trying not to face it head on, what you can do is you can initiate reconciliation. Why? Because God initiated reconciliation for you. And he came and he got involved when it was messy and when you, weren't, when you didn't really want it. And he came and he, he chased you down and he extended to you his grace. And what it means then is you're, you're enabled to do the little things, the little things like write a letter and to make a phone call or to send an email or to have a face-to-face conversation and say, this is how I feel and I'm sorry. You can initiate in repentance. You can initiate in forgiveness. You can initiate in bringing healing to your family. Because God has been ultimately the one who's initiated all these things. What Jesus comes and says is this is not the final word. What your family has done to you is not the final word. What you have done to your family is not the final word. I have come to give new life. I have come to give abundant life. And I am calling you now to live in light of what I have done for you. Believe. I understand when I say things like that, that, that many times there's a lot of pushback, that, that, that often you know, people have a million different scenarios going through their head about, you don't understand what I've gone through. You don't understand what I feel. You don't understand what's been done to me. And again, I, I probably don't. I understand that. I, I, I probably don't. And if you wrestle with this, I identify with that. I, I've wrestled with this as well. I've wrestled with this mightily as well. Probably, probably where I wrestled with it the most, to see Jesus bring redemption in a family. It isn't so much in mine, but it was actually a family uh, that I met down in Mexico. It, few years ago, I, I took several trips to a little border town in Acuna, Mexico. It's this little, like, hole-in-the-wall place. And me and some people went down there, and we basically did, like, citywide baseball camps for little kids and talked about Jesus and things like that. It was an awesome experience. And when we went down there, you know, the first five days were great. But then on the last day, you know, when you're in a foreign country, you sort of 
assume that it's sort of magical and you overly romanticize it and everybody's really nice and they don't speak the language and they're trying really hard. But then like you're there long enough and you realize that people are messed up just like us. And I remember specifically when that happened, when a little kid who I'd really grown fond of and like God seemed to really be doing a work in his life for the first five days was like so, he was just a great kid. He was just a really great kid. And then all of a sudden the last night when we were about to pack up our, our vans and drive back over the border to fly home, he comes up to me right before we leave and he starts asking for like my sunglasses and my hat and like the pesos that were still in my pocket. Like he basically was coming and essentially begging to me, begging me. And as I was having this conversation with him, I looked off in the distance and I saw this man who was drinking liquor out of a brown bag kind of watching us have this conversation. And I asked him in the very broken Spanish that I have, like, is that, is that your dad? Like, did he ask you to like come and beg from me? And he said, yeah, yeah, it is. And in that moment, I, I was devastated because I was thinking to myself, like, we're going to make a significant impact and ride off into the sunset, and, like, hundreds of kids' lives will be changed. And then in that moment, I see this little kid who's going to be growing up for the next 10 years in the home of an alcoholic father who, who pawns off, her, off his child to go beg of money from the seemingly rich white American. And in that moment, what I wrestled with is, like, how does one week of ministry, like, ever compete with 10 years? How does one week of ministry ever compete with 10 years of family impact? And I'll tell you, the only thing that comforted me, the only thing that comforted me is that Jesus would be there in that family. That all week we were preaching the gospel and that he is involved and he was seeking the good and the welfare and the joy of that city. He was heavily involved in seeking after redemption and restoration. That's, that's what I would say to you. I don't understand what it is that you've gone through. I don't understand the dynamics of your relationship with your parents. I don't understand what it was like to grow up in a home of divorce. I don't, I don't understand those things, but I will offer this that I unwaveringly and unpol- unapologetically hold out to you the power of the gospel. That Jesus is at work bringing redemption and restoration, and he is seeking after uh, the redemption of your family. That Jesus is there. That Jesus is here. And ultimately, the things that we expose are, to- are exposed to are toxic, that, that they're devastating. But in the end, Jesus says, that is not the final word. I have come to declare the final word, and it is finished. Every sin I have taken on the cross. New life is offered through the resurrection. Repent and believe and follow me. That's ultimately where hope for the family, where grace for the family is tied to. And that's ultimately where this story ultimately points to. Is that hope and redemption wouldn't be found in Jacob. It wouldn't be found in parents. It wouldn't be found through their ability to find good counseling. It wouldn't be found through brilliant sermons that explain exactly what it is that you're feeling. That ultimately the hope would be found in Jesus. And so as we close, what I would challenge you to then is if you're a follower of Jesus, what you do is you believe again that you turn back to the gospel and you ask God by his grace and his mercy to apply this to your life. Not just to apply it, but to do something in and through you. If it does mean writing a letter, writing a letter. If it does mean initiating a phone call, make a phone call. If it means doing something, do what the gospel compels you to do. What it means for those of you here who aren't followers of Jesus, what it means is the front door to redemption and restoration it isn't through self-help. It isn't learning to love yourself in spite of the fact that your dad never loved you. It's learning to find that God loves you, that the creator of the universe is in the business of redeeming and restoring lives. That's what 
he does in the most unlikely of scenarios and of situations. And that you would turn away from your sin, that you would turn to Jesus, that you would believe on him, and that you would give the rest of your life away to following him. He is in the business of redemption. He is in the business of restoration, particularly in the most unlikely of scenarios and situations. And so my prayer then is that your confidence and your hope is in him, that your faith would increase and it would compel you to be a minister of reconciliation and grace in, the, in probably some really ugly situations. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you are ultimately the chief minister of reconciliation and the minister of grace. And that's exactly what you have done in our lives. You've chased after us. You've pursued us. And you've given us something that we did not initiate and we didn't ask for, but, you, but, you, but you've extended to us, to us your grace anyways. And God, we are, thank you. We, we are so thankful for that. And I pray that that wouldn't be something just to save us, but it would be something to change every area of our lives. And this week, as we learn about family dynamics, as we learn about just some really hard stuff, like a dad who doesn't love his son and a mom who's manipulating the family, just stuff that many of us have experienced firsthand, that we would really work to apply the gospel to this area of our lives. We have been forgiven so we can forgive. You have initiated grace and reconciliation with us so we can initiate grace and reconciliation with others. I pray I pray that we would not just believe, but we would act. And that you would change our hearts and our minds and our hands as we interact with our families in some just really difficult situations. We thank you for this time. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.